Father, as we, as we open your word today, my prayer is that it will speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, Lord, speak to our whole being, and teach us, Lord, to love you more so with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength in order that you would be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've given our lesson today, our next lesson in the book of First John, the name, The Cure for Spiritual Hypochondria. And if you're not exactly sure, maybe that term sounds familiar to you, but you're not exactly sure what it is. It's the phenomenon or the tendency that uh, some people, maybe even a lot of people, have to think the worst about their physical health. Okay, if you want a technical definition of hypochondria, it's defined as, quote, the abnormal anxiety about one's health, especially with an unwarranted fear that one has a serious disease. And I've seen a a funny meme, you know, these little pictures with words on it floating around on Facebook and, and Twitter and other social media outlets that says, based on my symptoms, the internet tells me that I'm either dying or I have a little bit of a headache. Uh, the hypochondriac, of course, would, uh, would err to the side of extreme anxiety, you know, given these two options, and they would assume, uh, you're dying, you know, that they're dying, um, that the, the worst case scenario is most likely, uh, and I have to admit that uh, I tend to kind of do the same thing sometimes. Uh, just just to be honest about it, I, I do um, when when allergy season rolls around and I start feeling a little you know coarse or a little bit raspy in my throat. I'm I'm convinced. Oh man, I must be getting sick. I must be coming down with something. And I tell my wife, oh you know I, I think I'm I think I must be getting sick. My throat's like killing me. And she said, Have you, have you taken your allergy medicine? Oh yeah. Uh, maybe it's that. And so I'll take my allergy medicine and most of the time that usually fixes things right up. But just like people have this tendency, um, or this inclination toward, uh, assuming the worst about their physical health, their physical well-being, it's also perhaps equally possible, maybe even more likely for someone to assume the worst about their spiritual well-being, their spiritual health, their spiritual condition, now, the book of 1 John has a reputation among theologians, among, among people who study it. Uh, it's known as the book that's full of all the warnings, uh, warnings about one's standing with God, warnings about one's eternal destiny, warnings about false converts, people who profess to know Christ, but in actuality do not know him. And it's not a bad thing that these warnings are in place. In fact, it's a very good thing. These are things that we need to be warned about, and Scripture repeatedly admonishes those who profess to be a Christian to examine themselves. Peter does it. Paul does it. I think even Jesus implicitly does it. But to the American church's downfall or demise to an extent, we tend to avoid preaching things that might make people feel uncomfortable. We tend to avoid preaching and and teaching the warnings of Scripture because they are absolutely terrifying, if you understand them correctly. And they, they should be. They should be terrifying. If you're not a little bit shaken up when you read these things, check yourself. They're, they're a, little bit, uh, a little bit scary. They're there to put 
the literal fear of God in us and to, to keep it there, to make sure it stays there. When we, when we have the, the fear of the Lord, we walk humbly before him. We, we're teachable. We're, we're able to, to more accurately discern uh, the spirits as, uh, as we're instructed in Scripture to do. But it's entirely possible that somebody would reach this point, the point that we're at right now in John's epistle, and to be completely smitten by the fear of God. And, and that's one of those things that can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. It can be a good thing if it leads to the correct response, which is to examine ourselves more closely, more regularly, to test our profession of faith against the standards set forth in Scripture. But the fear of God, if it's too great, it can be absolutely paralyzing. And so it can be a bad thing if it causes somebody to, call, uh, to fall into spiritual hypochondria. That is, if a genuine believer reads this and they're convinced that they're not a legitimate believer, it's a bad thing. And so thus far in our study of First John, John has forced us to consider two great evidences of legitimate, uh, genuine conversion. First of all, given the fact that God is light and in him there is no darkness, the genuine Christian will learn to walk and live in the light. That is, they'll learn to live quorum Deo. Uh, if you don't remember that term, that means, quorum Deo means to live in the presence of God, by the grace of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. Because of this, they'll be progressively growing. Because of this attitude, they'll be progressively growing in the likeness of Christ, both in their desires and in their will. The second great evidence of legitimate conversion that John has set forth for us is that we'll be growing in our awareness uh, of our own sin and also simultaneously growing in our hatred toward our sin. Now again, that doesn't mean that we will become sinless, although it does mean that we should sin less, uh, but that when we do sin... We recognize it for what it is. We don't remain in denial about it. We don't disagree with what God has to say about it. Instead, we agree with God and what he has to say about that sin. We openly confess it. We openly repent before God. And we can be confident that the blood of Christ is sufficient to atone for all sin, knowing that Christ is our propitiation, our mercy seat, if you remember last week's lesson. After reading these, uh, these warnings and examining themselves, there will be some people who feel that they have failed those first two tests that John's given us. There will be some who look at these passages and they'll think to themselves, wow, maybe, maybe I, I, I walk in the darkness. And Jesus said you'll never walk in, his people will never walk in the dark. Maybe I'm not a Christian after all. And listen, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, would love nothing more than to convince God's people, legitimate people, his, the people who have legitimately uh, converted to Christianity, Satan would love to convince them, no, you haven't. Because that would stunt their growth and bring their sanctification, their, their walk with Christ to a crawl. But at the same time, Satan would also love for the false convert to continue enjoying a sense of assurance. And so anticipating the possibility of spiritual hypochondria, 
in legitimate Christians. John, therefore, will continue alternating between warning us and encouraging us all toward the ultimate purpose of this letter, which he lays forth in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And so John continues here. He says this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So if we have any questions, if we have any doubts, or if we're skeptical about ourselves, about whether our nature has changed because God has regenerated us, or if we feel a sense of unwarranted confidence about it, this test should help to bring clarity to the individual reading this. This test boils down to whether or not we're obedient to Christ. So whether or not we want to uphold the commandments of Christ. And many in our culture have been deceived into thinking that if they have just invested 30 seconds of their life in a quick prayer where they ask Jesus into their hearts, they're saved. I've seen and heard one preacher after another lead people in what they call the sinner's prayer, and they'll add something like this at the end. Uh, and this is actually a quote from a well-known, uh, highly respected evangelical preacher. And they'll, they'll say something like, quote, If you prayed that prayer, God heard you and saved you. I personally want to welcome you to the family of God and rejoice with you. End quote. Now, there's some truth there, possibly, but it's... It's taken too much. It's going too far. The implication is that the person is saved by something that they just did. If you just did this, if you just prayed this prayer, you're saved. Rather than being saved by God's grace alone, through the faith in Christ that God has granted them, that would cause them to say such a prayer. So the prayer, if it's legitimate, The prayer doesn't save you. It's the faith that caused the prayer that saves a person. And so there's there's some truth to this. A person can certainly pray and beg to God to forgive them. But the saving factor is not their prayer. The saving action is not anything that they have done. It's not even their intellectual assent to Christ's lordship. No, we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. For the glory of God alone. Now it's very easy for us to misinterpret these words that John gives us. It's our tendency to put the cart before the horse sometimes. And this is one place where people might have a tendency to do just that. To put the cart before the horse. They'll think that they can earn a position in Christ by following his commandments. That is not what John is telling us. John isn't telling us that you can be saved by your pure obedience, by keeping all the commandments. No, you can't. That's not what John is telling us. He's telling us just the opposite. He's telling us that our obedience to Christ's commands, are that's evidence that we're in Christ. What John is telling us is that while it's possible for a Christian to go through seasons in which their walk with Christ maybe feels stagnant, we have to remember that with the new nature that God gives to his people upon their regeneration, with that new nature comes new desires, new affections, new values. No, we won't reach perfection 
in our struggle against the flesh. We won't be perfected until we stand in the presence of Christ in heaven. But the point is, there will be a struggle. There will be a struggle. And if there's not a struggle, that's actually reason for concern. But the point is, there will be a struggle. At some point, our old desires will conflict with our new desires over the course of the Christian life. This is going to happen over and over and over. And over the course of a person's life after conversion, the new desires will gradually and progressively begin to replace the old. These new desires include the desire to live for Christ in accordance with his commandments. And so we stand firmly in our belief that the God who began a good work in us will complete it. We stand firmly in our belief that God is causing all things to work together for the good of his people. That being, that good being, not something that pleases our flesh, but that which pleases the spirit, that they would grow, that we would grow in Christ's likeness. We stand firm in our belief that the Holy Spirit dwells within each believer, empowering us and directing us through that process. And we stand firm in our belief that when the Christian resists the will of God and seeks to quench the Holy Spirit, that still small voice, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they'll be disciplined by God in order that they may be sanctified in accordance with God's will. And so a genuine desire to practice obedience to the commandments of God, it's possibly the greatest of all of these tests regarding salvation. And that's why James wrote in James chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith from your, apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And so like John's letter, like what he's written here, it's easy and perhaps even common for people to think that James is saying that we have to do good works in order to be saved. You know what Paul had to say about that idea? When he wrote to the Galatians, he said that those who teach and practice such a doctrine are accursed. That is, they are going to hell. That's where their teachings lead. That's where this doctrine of works leading to salvation leads. It leads straight to hell. So James and John, they're not contradicting Paul's words. They're all in harmony here. They're saying the same thing in different ways. Just like John, James is saying that good works are evidence or fruit of redemption, of salvation, not the cause of it. It's the effect, not the cause. And so James was addressing the person who would be so bold as to make the claim to have saving faith in Christ and yet has no fruit of obedience, no good fruit in their lives to show for it. And so James is simply saying that the person who, by God's grace, has been regenerated will show evidence. They'll bear fruit. They will be, they'll practice obedience to God's commands. Not by their own willpower, but by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, both of which are always sufficient. 
That's why Paul tells Timothy that Jesus, quote, saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. That's from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. So you want to know why God saved you? There, there you have it, at least part of it. It's because of his own purpose and, and grace. What is that purpose? At least part of that answer, I think, includes the answer that we find in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, where Paul tells us that we're created for good works in Christ, which he prepared beforehand for his people to walk in. So we're not, we're not a new creation. We don't become a new creation by walking in these things or doing these things. We're created for them. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for Good works. And so the true Christian doesn't just say that they believe. They don't just make a profession of faith and leave it at that, and their life has nothing to show for it. No, the, the legitimate convert will, at some point, eventually bear good fruit as evidence of their faith in Christ. And so James basically tells us, I love this, he tells us that the, that the demons have more wisdom than the person who thinks, uh, yeah, I, I don't have to be afraid of God, I believe, I'm good, I don't need to do anything. The demons have more wisdom than the person who claims to believe and yet has no good fruit to show for it because at least the demons shudder at the thought of God. And this is why this test and this, this warning that John has laid out before us is so critically important. A legitimate convert, some, somebody whose life is suddenly full of Christ, somebody who is dwelled in by the Holy Spirit should experience a change of desires. They should experience a change of values, a change of affections. Rather than hating the law of God as the unregenerate do, the genuine Christian can say with the psalmist, the, the, the call to worship that we did this morning, you know, it, it's all about loving God's law and wanting to love God's law. That's from Psalm chapter 119. Uh, the psalmist continues in chapter 119 with this theme. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He goes on to say, I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. That's from verses 97, 113, 163, and 165. Think there's a theme there in chapter 119, Psalm chapter 119? Loving the law. Not, not just because it gives you the facade that you know, earns the praise of men, but loving it for what it is because that person has love for God that's so great that they, they want to know everything that pleases God. If you want to know, if you, if you want to make your wife happy, say you love your wife or, or your husband more than anything in the world, what do you want to do? You want to know what makes them happy. And so you study them. You, you learn from them what makes them happy so that you can do it. And that's what the psalmist is saying. And here's the funny thing. Tim Keller sums it up well. He says, only when we see that we cannot keep the rules and need God's mercy, can we become people who begin to keep the rules? What can give somebody such a sincere and deep love and desire for being obedient to the commands of God 
What could do that other than God's work of regeneration within the individual? That's what John's telling us here. See, talk's cheap when it comes to professing much of anything. Our actions tell us what's really going on inside of us. You know, that's why, you know, New Year's resolutions get broken so fast. You can say whatever you want, but what do you really want? And so once, once that conflict comes to a head, once, those two, once your, your, your New Year's resolution and your desires come to a head, something's going to give and your desires are going to win out. So our desires show the world, our, our actions uh, show the world what we truly desire, what we love and cherish, which is why John continues by telling us that while the person who knows Christ will be obedient to his commandments, conversely, chapter uh, 2, verse 4, he continues saying, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This should be an absolutely terrifying reality for the person who makes a profession of faith in Christ. And yet, as they look at their life, what they see is that their desires are unchanged. Their values look just like the world. Their personal inclinations, their affections, all of this is virtually indistinguishable from the reprobate, from the carnal, from the worldly desires and values of the culture around them. We should not just be like chameleons and blend in with the culture. There should be something about the Christian that is vastly different, as different as light is from darkness. The hard truth is that those who show no interest in following God's commands have not come to know him. That's what John says here, that the person who says, I know Christ, but they're entirely disobedient to him is a liar. Now, somebody might object and say, now, wait a minute, you know, we all break the law. You know, isn't there grace? Yes. Yes, there is grace. Grace. In fact, I would say there is a super abundance of grace, more grace than you could possibly ever need or use for the believer, because God knows that we will stumble and we will fail to live in perfect accordance with his commands. But grace is not just a ticket to a free ride. It's not permission to just live however we choose And it does not grant us permission to live as if there is no God under whose authority we exist and for whose glory we live and breathe. We are still called to obedience. Yes, there is grace, but we're still called to obedience. This is the second great uh, purpose of the Great Commission. Jesus said uh, in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations doing what? baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So the mission is, is summed up as, you know, it's just to go out and make disciples. How do we do that? We proclaim the gospel, which is the means by which God has ordained that people will come to faith and thus be baptized as believers. They must hear the gospel. If you want to see the whole line of succession and how that works, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 14. 
And so once people come to faith, what do we do? We teach them to observe or obey all that Christ has commanded. And that's why John goes on to say, verse 5, 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, he says, But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is, per- is perfected. Now, just to clarify, this is not referring to God's love for the individual Christian. God's love for his people doesn't become perfect through some type of process or over time. God's love for his people, for the Christian, is perfect from the moment that God receives the individual as an orphan into his family. Rather, what John's saying, he's, he's talking about the love that comes from the individual toward God. Their love of God or love for God is progressively growing and is progressively purified and being purified over time. And over the course of their walk with Jesus, their love for Jesus, their love for the Lord, their love for God becomes more and more and more evident because they grow in greater and greater obedience to him because they're growing in their love for him. So obedience to God matters. It matters a lot. It implicitly acknowledges God's sovereign authority in our lives. I've said it before, and I think it's it's always worth repeating. The question is not whether we just want a Savior. The question is whether we want a Lord and Savior. And that question is really most most accurately and, and, and best answered by a life that's growing in obedience, growing in willful submission to the Lordship of Christ, growing in our desire to yield to his authority because we're growing, all of this, because we're growing in our love for him. The Lord Jesus once said that he always does what is pleasing to the Father. There was not one nanosecond in his entire life where he strayed from this, where he wasn't doing what was pleasing to the Father. His entire life was lived this way, doing what was pleasing to the Father. And so if we're growing in the likeness of Christ, and Romans 8.28 says that God is causing all things to work together to accomplish this purpose, growth in Christ-likeness in the lives of his people, if we're growing in the likeness of Christ, we must see the same thing happening to us. We must see a desire to do, to constantly be doing what is pleasing to the Father. That's the direction in which we'll grow, not by our own willpower, not by our own strength, but by His. And some days, maybe even some seasons, that'll mean taking two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes we may fall into sin and face the temporal wrath of God, the the discipline of God, which spurs us on toward growing in personal holiness. But he doesn't discipline us because he hates us. He disciplines us because he loves us, just like a good father would discipline his child out of love. Over the course of the Christian life, there will be noticeable progress. There will be good fruit. Paul Washer says this, he says, quote, those who profess faith in Christ but have nothing to do with his commandments should be greatly concerned, even though they adamantly protest that they truly love God but do not show it in their actions. They must be shown that the scriptures acknowledge no such love but rather denounce it as meaningless dribble. 
end quote. So here's one cure for spiritual hypochondria. Ask yourself, examine yourself and ask yourself truly and honestly, do you have a desire to obey God, to follow Jesus, no matter what the cost? As you look back over the course of your walk as a Christian, do you see change? Even a little bit, even just some. Do you see any kinds of change turning away from the values and the affections and all those things of the culture and turning to God's values? You aren't sinless, but do you sin less? And perhaps most importantly, are, are you growing in your love for God? Are you growing in your love for Christ? Now, that can honestly be a, a kind of difficult thing to assess depending on the person. I mean, what do you say to the person who hasn't been a convert for very long? Maybe last week they made their first profession of faith. And so they really haven't had sufficient time to see a, a, any kind of change in their lives, m- much less a, a radical change in their lives. You know, I, I totally get it. This, this can be very difficult to assess. Not to mention the fact that it's difficult to see ourselves objectively enough to really make an honest assessment. But while a person's obedience to Christ is probably the greatest evidence of their salvation, the greatest evidence of their regeneration, it can also be the trickiest and the most uh, difficult to accurately assess. And so for that reason, John's going to follow uh, follow this up by giving us a, a much easier standard, a much easier test, if you will. He continues in verses 5 and 6. He says, By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The person who says that they abide in Christ ought to walk in the same way that Christ walked. Now, if you have your Bible open, you might want to write John chapter 15 over there in the margin because that's where we find a a huge discourse that Jesus gave about abiding in him. That's where he says, abide in me and you'll bear good fruit. Without me, you can do nothing. John chapter 15. Now there was never a single time in the earthly ministry of Christ in which he failed to love God the Father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything that he did was for the glory of God. He was so flawless and sinless, even his enemies acknowledged such. Pontius Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. The centurion at the cross said, truly, this man was extraordinary. This was the Son of God. Who among us, who among us could could even dare to say that we have met this standard, that we're basically Jesus' moral equal? If this were the test, our only response would be to despair and to feel a sense of loss and hopelessness. But there is no need to feel a sense of despair when we realize that we fall short of the perfect standard set by Christ, the, by the, the perfect standard by which he lived. It's almost a natural reaction when we look at this to feel a, a slight sense of despair because we all, uh, you know, we all realize that none of us Not one of us walks in the same way that Jesus walked. But once we realize 
but that's not what John is saying exactly. We'll see that this test should give a tremendous amount of confidence, a tremendous amount of assurance to even the weakest individual Christian. See, if you were to put this passage all together, you'd see that to be obedient to the commands of Christ means to walk as Christ walked. And to see what it looks like to live in perfect obedience to God, all we need to do is examine the life of Christ. But John isn't saying that we're capable of matching his steps perfectly. He isn't saying that we're capable of achieving the perfection of Christ. In fact, back in chapter 1, he acknowledged that nobody, nobody is without sin. So nobody perfectly walks as Christ walked. But rather, John is once again challenging us He's challenging us to examine ourselves, to examine our lives, our hearts, our attitudes, our desires, our affections, and to examine the effects that those things have on the way in which we live. The question really boils down to this. Do you want to imitate Christ? Do you want to grow in Christ's likeness? Do you want to be more like him? Do you want to imitate him? Do you want to walk in the same way in which he walked? Think of it this way. Imagine that there was a young child who had an older brother, and the younger brother looked up to and admired everything about his older brother. And so the family goes on vacation uh, to the beach, and the young child sees his brother running toward the ocean across the beach, diving under the waves. And what are the younger brother's inclinations since he so deeply admires his older brother? He wants to do the same thing, to run into the ocean, to dive into a wave just like his big brother And as they walk on the beach, the younger brother, though much smaller and obviously more clumsy than his older brother and with a shorter stride than his older brother, he tries to walk through the sand in the same trail of footprints left in the sand behind his older brother. And even though he can't do it, and everyone can see that he can't do it, that's what makes it kind of so cute, his feet are, are so much smaller and his stride is so much shorter, the younger brother nevertheless isn't discouraged And he continues trying to literally walk in his brother's footsteps to the best of his ability. Now, the scriptures have a lot of different ways of describing Christ. He's described as our prophet, priest, and king. He's our Lord. He's our Savior. He's our older brother. Paul writes this. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. He said, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, his Son, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. He says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. And so we shouldn't think that it's 
too much or that it's strange or, or unusual that walking as Christ walked is a test by which we may gain a stronger sense of assurance of our salvation. When Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he wasn't just talking about, you know, go to the places I go. He's not speaking geographically. No, when he said, follow me, to follow a rabbi, to follow Jesus meant to become like the master in every way in which a person lives. Now we recognize that we'll never do that perfectly. Unlike the the younger brother who wants to be like his older brother, who imitates and emulates his older brother, they will eventually probably grow to be uh, you know, the, the, the same size, have the same size feet roughly, same size stride roughly. But unlike them, we'll never grow to the point in our imitation of Christ where we're at his level. But there are two things that we should see in our lives. Number one, a growing desire. A growing desire to walk as Christ walked. A growing desire to live a life in which we are constantly doing what is pleasing to God. That's the first thing we should see. Number two, we should see continued and sustained progress in our obedience over the course of time. It'll never be perfect, but it should be getting better. And this is one of the great not-so-secret secrets of growing in the Christian life. Learning to walk like Christ. To walk like Christ means to live in a way, it's not just WWJD, you know, the, the, the typical, you know, everybody used to have the bracelets and the necklaces and everything. It's more than that. To walk like Christ means to live in a way that reflects a desire to please God at all times. To walk like Christ means to live in a way that depends on God rather than yourself. To walk like Christ means learning and growing to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength at all times. Not just sometimes, all times, without ceasing. To walk like Christ means learning to live quorum Deo in the presence of God, by the grace of God, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. And when times get tough, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, our response isn't to say, ah, forget it, God, I'm going to start doing things my way. Our response is to cry out in our hearts, not my will, Lord, but yours. In the flesh, this is an absolutely impossible task. Absolutely impossible. Nobody can do this in the flesh. But the Holy Spirit dwells within each believer, and he's guiding us, and he's empowering us. And when we realize how difficult it is, it's tempting because it involves a lot of change. It involves radical change, and it's, it's sometimes easier for us to say, you know what? God, I'm I'm resisting here, but just do it anyway in, in spite of my resistance. But that is not how God sanctifies us. That's not how he teaches us to walk with him. Rather, God sanctifies us by giving us a new nature which will increasingly affect and change our will. It'll increasingly affect our values and our ambitions, the things that we love, the things that we hate, in order that we will learn over time to more and more closely walk in his ways. 
So are you learning to walk as Christ walked? Looking over the course of your life, is that something that you see? Are you growing in your desire to constantly and incessantly love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength? Are you growing in your desire to be obedient to him? As obedient of Christ who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you doubt, look at your life. Look for your desires. Look for the things that you want. Look for the, even the small changes. And if you find that your answer to these questions leads you to despair or to doubt, I would simply beg that you look to the cross, where, the cross where you will find the Savior of the world who shed his blood and who bore the wrath of God against your sin in order that the one who believes in him will never perish, but will have eternal life. They'll have forgiveness. They'll have redemption in him. Look to the cross if you doubt and make it your heart's cry to follow and give your life to this one who lived a life in which he faced every temptation that we face and yet was without sin. And trust in him. Trust in Christ fully. And trust in him alone. And make the imitation of Christ your greatest desire. And do not stop pursuing that end. But if your answer is yes, if indeed you are learning to walk as Christ walked. If you are indeed growing in your desire to love God with all of your being, all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you are indeed growing in your desire to be obedient to his commands, then may you continue to run the race, striving to be increasingly obedient, striving to imitate Christ, striving to be more and more like him, looking to him as the author and perfecter of our faith. This is the cure for spiritual hypochondria. And this is the means by which we become mature in our faith, that our love for Christ and all of our personal inclinations to be like him continue to grow. And so may we as individuals and as a church bear much good fruit as we pursue Christ and as we abide in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for bearing the wrath of God against our sin. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to look at your life and to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, and to just follow you, no matter what the cost might be, no matter how difficult it might seem, Lord. Teach us to follow you more closely. Teach us to resemble you more fully in our love for for God and in our desire to please you and to please the Father. Holy Spirit, give us the conviction that we need to, to know what we need to turn from. Speak to our hearts that we may turn to you, turn turn our hearts away from our sin and live for you. God, thank you for loving us enough to discipline us and turn us away from this poisonous stuff called sin. In our prayer, Lord, 
is that we would be a light for you in this world. And I don't know if there's a time in this nation's history where we've needed light more badly. So we pray, God, that you would shine through us and that we would submit to you, yield our lives to you more fully for that purpose and for your glory. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper